It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Shashi Jasti, President and CEO of Solugenics. He's responsible for driving client and partner value through innovative technology and business solutions. Shashi has over 20 years of experience managing information technology and consulting organizations. He holds an MBA from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, an MS in Computer Science from Northwestern, and a Bachelor of Technology degree in Electronics Engineering from the Indian Institute of Technology in Madras, India. Shashi lives in Scottsdale, Arizona with his wife and two children. His claim to fame? He can sing some oldies on an acoustic guitar that can clear a large public park in under two minutes. Shashi Jasti, welcome into the corner office. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to have you here. And uh, for those of you that are listening, uh, we're at about 10 weeks into this crisis. And, um, you know, it's been an interesting experience for all of us uh, listening. And of course, those on the call. Shashi, how have you been doing through this period? Oh, I'm I'm sitting here in my computer room at home, and uh, uh, you know we're we're all going through the same thing. Yes, uh, yes. We, uh, I have two children. Uh, we all four of us, my wife and two children, and I have been cooped up in our Scottsdale office <laughs> for the last several weeks. Right, right. These are very interesting times. Well, I'll be interesting to hear as we get into the podcast some of the um, impacts this is going to have on your firm and you know some of the changes perhaps that'll be taking place in your workplace. But uh, I think we're facing a new normal. This is going to change our lives in so many ways, as as of course nine eleven did twenty odd years ago, and uh, it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. But let's start at the beginning, and and yours is a very interesting immigrant story. As we uh, spoke uh, a couple of weeks back, tell me a little little bit about your early years growing up in India, you know, and what your early family life was like. Yeah, I grew up in a city called Hyderabad mm. in southern India. That that city was almost unknown to Americans uh, for most of the time. It's a mid-sized city. That means it has, what, uh, 5 million people or 10 right. million people nowadays. Uh, and very much but, a tech sector now, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's it's become quite uh, well known, at least in the technology industry in the U.S. Because after Bangalore, which is uh, the pioneer in bringing information technology around the world, right. uh, Hyderabad seems to be a place where pretty much every 
multinational, including American multinationals, have set up a foothold there. Yeah. Was that going on when you were growing up? In other words, has this developed more recently, or or was that in this development mode while you were growing up uh, in Hyderabad? Oh, it was so different. It, it definitely yeah. was not going on. So, so one of the <laughs> things that uh, uh, he, I, I tend to think about is India as well as Hyderabad before 1991 and mm. after 1991. What happened in 1991 was uh, Indian government has decided that they need to liberalize and embrace free market economy if right. India had to prosper. So before yep, 1991, yep. it was really uh, uh, a different world. Uh, opportunities yeah. were very limited. And entrepreneurship was uh, neither appreciated nor rewarded because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. majority of the economy was dominated by the government and, of course, some kind of a crony capitalism. But after yeah. 91, it has uh, opened up. And one of the effects of that is this global IT industry that uh, helped Hyderabad uh, prosper. Right, so before, right. before 91, it definitely was not that way. And I left India in 89 and came to Chicago. So So you left left, before that really happened. Yeah, I left never knowing that uh, (laughs) uh, this revolution would happen. And it's uh, it's almost like the Wild West of uh, (laughs) technology there. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about your parents, brothers and sisters. What were some of the inspiring things that happened while you grew up? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, Both my parents... uh, uh were quite uh, educated my mom mm-hmm. is a graduate in biological sciences and my dad also in biological sciences one of them is a botanist the other one is a zoologist oh. i guess wow. uh, uh botanists and zoologists like each other i guess <laughs> <laughs> that worked out for them did they yeah. meet while they were in uh, in medical school no they they or they arranged grew up marriage in the perhaps <laughs> uh, yeah uh Oh, actually, the, that's a, a quite an interesting story. They grew up in the same village, oh. and arranged marriages were very much the norm. Of course, yeah, and yeah. Uh, even today, to a certain extent, from many of my yeah, Indian to friends, a, m- much less in the much metropolitan so. areas, of course. Right, but right. they they grew up in a small village on the coast of Bay of Bengal. Mm-hmm, One of the mm-hmm. things that we, as we grew up as uh, children, came to know is that these two people actually chose themselves oh, and, that's nice. and went yeah. to their parents and said, hey, we want to marry. Yeah. So that, that I'm sure has caused a sensation in the village because that's <laughs> not... <laughs> that just didn't happen back in those days. Yeah, no. in those days, it didn't happen. <laughs> so, Were you a good student in school? Yeah, I was in... Um, uh, looking back... Uh, what I realize now is till about the seventh or eighth grade, I was an okay student, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and nothing much to write home about, right? <laughs> but but uh, starting around eighth grade, uh, I I just took off and mm. and uh, was there released... a seminal event or something that happened yeah, in the eighth grade? I, I, I think motivated? so. In uh, at that time, I did not realize and. I tend to really believe that what a kid focuses on and what a kid takes pride in depends so much on the adults yes. that surround them. 
right? Right, right. So I think the reason for the flip has been a couple of my teachers. Both of them happen to be physics teachers. One is hmm. uh, Mr. Rao. Another one is uh, Mr. Wilfred. Amazing. And, you remember their names. That's oh, great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you, you always remember the people who've been yeah, yeah, the uh, most very influence. influential. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So in retrospect, what I realized is they would really be passionate about the subject of physics mm. and would explain it so well that uh, it was as if I was going through a mystery novel or something. Wow. It would com completely engage you. And when they were you to transfer it, the passion, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. That's and awesome. When, and when you really work hard to uh, get some of the answers, they would encourage you. So yeah, uh, yeah. for a kid at that age, I think uh, to be acknowledged for the ha hard work and be encouraged, that, that, that can be a good catalyst for yeah, the change. Absolutely. So that makes, so that, that's what I would say. Uh, what about I, what about outside of class? Uh, I, I believe cricket's still the national sport, or was at that point in time, or a very popular one. Were you a cricket player? Or were there other sports or yeah. music theater you engaged with? Yeah, uh, I was okay in cricket. I think I had a, <laughs> uh, a you have a batsman and a bowler, uh, right? Uh, right. Unlike, it's like the batter and the pitcher, right? Yep. Um, so I was never a good batsman, but I was an okay pitcher, uh -huh. uh, okay bowler, I guess. Um, there are two types of bowling. One is called the pace bowling, where you intimidate the batter by really chucking the ball really fast. Really fast. And yeah. I, I was never strong enough to do that, but so I made it up. <laughs> I made it up by being a great spinner. Spinner ah. is when you really spin the ball, and in mm. cricket, the ball hits the ground before it goes towards the batter. Right. So that right. used to be my specialization. But I've, I've never been an athlete. I guess I was uh, more of a geek and uh, um, into academics than sports. But uh, Were there other things that you spent your time with outside of class? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it used to be much less uh, regimented, uh, um, you know, recreation for the kids. Right. Uh, when, when I compare with what my kids in Scottsdale, Arizona go through today, uh, <laughs> in, in a way, uh, uh, it's sad that they don't have that unstructured uh, time to goof off with their uh, friends and and so on. So that's essentially what uh, I think we did. And depending on the season, there used to be multiple uh, sports or avocations for kids there, whether it's swimming in the local lake or uh, flying kites. Right. Uh, there was a season around January where all the kids used to start flying kites, all wow. kinds of colors. And uh, I was pretty good at some types of that. There was kite flying as a sport uh, was quite advanced in the sense that you would uh, uh, really try to uh, fight with someone else using the kite. And the kind of thread that you would use will go and cut the thread of the other kite. Oh, if right. They're really fighting kites. I love <laughs> yeah, it. Oh, yeah. that's great. So, so that was quite, was it a competition or more of a, a personal play type of uh Oh, game? it's a competition, but it wasn't, 
<laughs> it wasn't organized. You you just right. Of course, of course. Yeah. Just go out so, to the field. And, yeah. 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 And you were near the coast, so obviously you probably had very nice winds. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, Hyderabad itself is uh, a bit inland. My parents grew up yeah. in the coast. I grew up more in the plateau, which is uh, Hyderabad. So a couple of things uh, I wanted to say about my parents, if if that's yeah, uh, okay, absolutely. right? So my dad, after his bachelor's in um, sciences, he went and got uh, multiple master's degrees, including a degree in law and a degree similar to the CPA here mm. uh, and so on. And he is a serial entrepreneur. Mm. Right now he's... Uh, He's 84 years old. He still works about uh, eight hours a day minimum. And in the last uh, two years, he published three bo- three more books. Wow. <laughs> so uh, the work ethic definitely uh, was a great influence on me. And my mom, after she had uh, three kids, I have two younger sisters. Um, she decided that she'll be a full-time mom and she really took that job very seriously. And uh, the fact that all three of us have uh, master's degrees and do, doing very well in our professions is a testimony to her focus on education. It, mm. You know, uh, one would think that with two parents, uh, college graduates, you would yeah. have a com- comfortable living. But in the pre-liberalization India, that wasn't so. Yeah, yeah. Even even uh, educated. Well, did you work? I mean, were there jobs that you did? I don't know much about the Indian culture in the high school years. You know, in the U.S., of course, you start with paper routes and work retail and do a lot of things that help supplement the income. But I don't think that's quite the case and probably wasn't because the yeah. economy really wasn't that liberal when you were there, right? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Actually, um I think the opportunities, even for adults, were so sparse that right, right. there's definitely no way a teenager could would take go, a job. Yeah, would yeah. take a job, right? So, right. growing up, my parents would say the best thing you can do with your time is get good grades yeah. because uh, there's nothing else you can do now which will right. really enhance your long-term well-being. Well, you went on to to do that. You obviously got your initial electrical engineering degree in India and then on to get a, both an MS in computer science as well as an MBA uh, after you came to the U.S. What what led you into engineering, uh, particularly given that your parents were, you know, both in kind of more of the, of the, the, the biology and the biology zoology side. fields? Yeah, <laughs> I, I go back to my physics teachers. I think, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, uh, you, you realize uh, after all these years how small interactions can have a big impact. I fell in love with the physical sciences as against natural sciences. Physics and math, uh, more than even chemistry, really had a kind of an elegance to them. It's not that you need to just uh, learn things by heart in a rote memory. Everything flowed from a logic that reveals itself. The more you know, the more you, uh, more elegant it shows. So that love for 
physical sciences, uh, I think, uh, got me into engineering. That's awesome. Now, did you take your first job in India or did you come straight uh, over to the U.S. for your MS in computer science at Northwestern? That's a great question, actually. Uh, uh, if you may, that might result in a two-minute answer. It might be worth <laughs> That's it. All right. <laughs> so uh, I worked uh, and got into this thing called the IIT, Indian Institute of Technology. It is right. similar to uh, the best uh, engineering schools in the U.S., for example. And that's in Madras, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah, right. Which is a different, a very different part. I mean, that's quite far from Hyderabad, right? A different oh, it is. cultural yeah. area and as well as a different geoclimate as well. Completely, because yeah. India is a, a quite rightly called a subcontinent. That's you go right. from yeah. one state to another; it's completely completely different. different. Yeah. The, right. And the language spoken is different. And I didn't know the language when I went there. Wow! Uh, all that. Uh, so um, I. The IITs were super competitive uh, colleges to get into. In those days, there were only five IITs amongst a sea of uh, underfunded, mediocre engineering schools. These right. five IITs were definitely world class. They, they were if the cream you would of the rank, crop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you would rank the top 20 engineering schools in the world, those five would be there. They, wow. they were that good. Right? Yeah. And so the ratio, about one and a half lakhs, which translates to 150,000 kids used to compete in those exams, and about 1,500 were chosen. So it was mm. extremely competitive. Very competitive, yeah. Right? So I got into that and got a real world-class education. And what you realize is that that education was completely free because the government would subsidize everything. Other That's than great. the yeah. money that your parents put for your food, you're not spending anything at all. And majority of my class, as well as all my seniors in the previous years, used to, after they graduate from the IIT, would be lured away by the U.S. universities or mm. multinational corporations and go right. work at, in greener pastures. Yeah, a small, right, right. <laughs> small minority uh, of the kids used to say, okay, I'll, I'll stay back here. I was one right. of those. You're one of those, right? Yeah. yeah. So out of the 23 people in the electrical engineering class that I was in, Three of us stayed back wow, for various reasons. Only three, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, wow. And uh, two of us said, oh, this is a poor country. It has spent so much money on our behalf. Yeah, uh, let's, right. let's stay let's back, give back and build, yeah. build something. So I right. stayed back. And, wow. and what three, did you do? What was that first job then out of college? Uh, out it of was software development. Okay. And uh, the first two years, I actually went to a refractory manufacturer. These are the manufacturer of these uh, tiles that line blast furnaces and so on, mm. and, and created their first uh, computer department to do their data wow. processing and all that. Yeah, yeah. Did they give you some leadership responsibilities early on there? Were you, were you managing people uh, eventually? Uh, not much managing people as mm -hmm. uh, as much as managing technology. There was an older yeah. gentleman who was better at managing people. Okay, but uh, but I had uh, free reign on how the technology should be brought into that industry and so on. 
Right, right. So well, what prompted about, the decision to go on to Northwestern and uh, that's complete a, your education there? That's a great point. Yeah. You know, so I, I said coming out of college in IIT, I said, uh, I need to stay back in this poor country and help and so right. on, right? So in four years, that idealism had been beaten out of me. <laughs> <laughs> Some because, of us are slow learners, right, Josh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> no, uh, so in the pre-liberal liberalization India, meritocracy was not really your ticket to success. And mm. uh, who you knew mattered more than what you did, right? Now, nowadays, it's completely different, right? So... What I realized by around 89 is that if you stay in a low opportunity economy like this, in spite of all your effort, you are definitely making peanuts. You can't help anyone with the, so you need to go where you can make some money and then you can help people. Uh, then you can put some, uh, force and resources behind what you want to do. Uh, and so I, I came to the U.S. not for studies, but actually, uh, coincidentally, in my morning newspaper in Hyderabad, there was an ad from a Chicago management uh, consulting firm saying they want to recruit some good Unix engineers. And I was a pretty good... U Unix is a computer operating system technology. And uh, I was pretty good at it. I applied for it, came, came to Evanston, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. And why Evanston is important is because I worked full-time at this company. It's a management consulting firm, still very thriving. It's called ZS Associates, amazing company. And Evanston happens to be the place where Northwestern University also is. An amazing university, private university, and a great engineering school. Every day I used to walk past that campus and I just couldn't help myself. I said, okay, I'll work full time, but I'll find a way to uh, get an, a master's degree. So I went and got a master's in computer science working part um, studying part-time, working full-time. That's how I ended up in uh, Northwestern. Awesome. Awesome. And then you worked for a while before going back to get your MBA. So tell us a little bit about that first job and how you made your choices around uh, coming out of Northwestern. Yeah. Uh, while working at ZS and later a company called SEI that became Solugenics, which is the company I lead okay, now. Got it. Right? Uh, I used to uh, run projects that utilized my experience both in electronics because I had a bachelor's degree in electronics engineering and master's in computer science and my software experience. So the kinds of projects that we did, the projects that I led were similar to what I did at Motorola. In those okay. days, Motorola was definitely a major innovator uh, Motorola invented the concept of cellular phones. That's right. And uh, I remember one of, having one of those bricks years and years ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, even before the brick cell phones, we had what we called as car phones because they were so That's big. That's right. Yeah, they came out first. Yeah, they could yeah. fit in the console, in the middle console. 
you couldn't <laughs> even hold it with your two hands as That's like right. a brick. So it was a That's car right. phone. So one of the most complex uh, projects that I led, and I'm st still very proud of it, is uh, outfitting the entire uh, cell phone manufacturing factories of uh, uh, Motorola in a couple of locations in Illinois uh, with computers and data uh, networks that not only monitor the whole production process as it happens, but analyze how the factory is doing and take corrective actions. So suppose mm -hmm. in, a, in an electronics factory that makes cell phones, there are these uh, machines called the placement machines. They right. place various chips on boards. If something goes wrong and the machine is not stopped, you will lose a lot more money and a lot more time. Mm. So you want to have computers really monitoring every second, every machine out there. So we outfitted the entire uh, factory with those. So the background in both electronics and uh, software and statistical process control, all that really helped. It's uh, because we were all engineers who really loved technology and engineering. It's uh, as they say, catnip for cats, right? Yeah. So we, <laughs> we I were, love it. Uh, we were on cloud nine to say that that was the best job anyone could give. So I was very happy. So you went on and got your MBA at Booth, uh, great school. So uh, you asked me a question, what made you go through MBA? Yeah. And, yeah. and as you grow, you understand that uh, the most complex and most challenging or possibly even most consequential and beneficial pro problems are not dealing with just computers and machines. It's dealing with people because right. if you, you can have the best technology, best hardware, best software, best uh, smarts, but if you're not able to motivate people to do the work or if you're not able to build a team out of a group, Right. Your project can't succeed. You yeah. live and learn. And it was a humbling experience for me because coming mm. out of an elite engineering school, you have a chip on your shoulder saying that, okay, I'm smart. I can solve any problem. But you can't right. without right. the help of humans. So that was a mystery to me. So I said, mm. let me go to the other side and learn this mysterious thing called uh, there's a friend of mine, uh, Ray is his name. He, he's a great CIO in the New York area. He used to always say, Shashi, it's uh, easy to manage the silicon units. It's the carbon units that give you trouble because carbon units never work to spec. Hmm. Carb carbon units are humans. Silicon units right. are computers. Right. right? right? It, so an MBA, I, I thought I need to really hang out with people who are not engineers and see how they think, how they solve problems, uh, because there are very few problems of consequence that you can solve with just one or two people and with just technology. That's right. And the University of Chicago is still one Great of the school. best MBA yeah. schools in the world. And I was always fascinated by the Chicago School of Economic Thought. Milton Friedman has always been my idol. Mm. Uh, so I went to University of Chicago and got an MBA. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. So went on to your career, which obviously led you up to uh, joining uh, Soul Eugenics, which we talked about a little bit in your bio, but you had a few jobs before that and, and kind of managed your path. Did you kind of have in mind that you wanted to lead a company someday and particularly coming out of MBA school? Or was your journey kind of more one of, um, you know, one job to the next and then all of a sudden found yourself at the top? Yeah. So it wasn't. Uh that sometime when I was in my 20s and I sat down and wrote a plan and said, by the time I'm 35, I'll be an entrepreneur far from it. You know, as they say, life is what happens to you when you're planning something else, right? Uh, So how I ended up becoming an entrepreneur was after working in Chicago for this company and a spinoff, which is a great story in itself, a spinoff called Navtech. I moved to Arizona because one of my buddies out of New York convinced me that uh, this internet revolution that started around Mm. 99 has legs and I have this opportunity to lead the national delivery team of a few thousand people out wow. of Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. So I came here and really grew the Western region there from nothing to several hundreds of people. And during those years, uh, before the crash, uh, uh, the internet companies were flush with the uh, cash. So they went and acquired companies uh, left and right. So these guys in New York in the headquarters would acquire companies and they would realize that they're bleeding money Mm. and they'd say, okay, we need to send someone to fix it. They'll say, okay, Shashi, we have (laughs) (laughs) this next project, so go here and fix that. So two two such acquisitions that I had the privilege of going and turning around. One of them was a company they acquired out of Provo, Utah. The other one was out of Wellington, New Zealand, as well as Sydney, Australia. (laughs) Wow, those are diverse points in the group. Yeah, and it was, uh, you couldn't pay someone to get that kind of of, uh, experience. So for, for me who, uh, lived in Chicago for more than a decade and then Arizona to go to Provo, Utah and turn around the company, an amazing company that pioneered a lot of UI and UX yeah. revolutions. And, um, and uh, th- that was uh, quite a valuable experience. How yeah. do you preserve the value? How do you make sure that people are not spooked and at the same time, make some tough decisions to ba- balance the books yeah. and and turn it around. So after the Utah experience, I, I gained some confidence. So they said, okay, we acquired a larger company, which is losing even more money. Why don't you go to Sydney? <laughs> and they had more confidence than you. <laughs> yes. So uh, I told my wife, okay, we, we just had uh, our daughter. She, she was not even one year old. Mm. I said, we are moving to New Zealand and Australia. Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm blessed with a spouse who's very understanding. Yeah. Um, so she said, okay. So we went there. I turned that, that also around. 
And uh, it was a great experience to live in a different culture. We tend to think of UK, Australia, New Zealand to be similar to us mm. in culture, especially in business culture. But there are so many differences, so many nuances. Uh, it was a very en enriching experience. So I, oh, I came back. Yeah. So by the time I came back, I was uh, really feeling very confident, uh, you might say cocky. Hmm. I said, okay, here I am. I've been able to take these companies that are 10 million or 50 million in revenues that were losing money left and right. I was able to turn them around within 12 months each. So why don't I do it myself? You yeah. know, wh wh why do I do it for some New York-based uh, company? Right. So I, I actually landed back in Phoenix with a business plan and I called a couple of my buddies who happened mm. to be my colleagues and I said, guys, I want to be an entrepreneur. Are you in? Mm. They said, yes, we want to be entrepreneurs also. You go first. So I, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I, I resigned first and uh, you, you would know it. I resigned on September 1st, 2001. Oh my goodness! You're kidding. Oh, <laughs> and everyone knows 90. what. So oh I, yes, I, I had all these plans oh, for uh, uh, developing a certain software for a niche that we have identified, and then going and selling. And we said, okay, we are just coming out of the recession from early 2001. Right. Now it's only way up, and. Hmm. And of course, on September 11, all heck breaks loose, oh, right? Yeah. So those nine months, so I went to my wife and I said, uh, no one was giving any projects. No one was spending any money. I said, give me about nine months. If uh, I don't make this at least a break-even thing, if I don't close any business, I'll uh, swallow my pride and I'll come back take any job because we, we didn't have many savings. We were, um, so I didn't want to jeopardize the uh, financial um, you know, stability of the family on such a big Hail Mary pass, right? Right. So right. I had nine months. So lo and behold, in the eighth month, we closed the first, first project. And, but those eight months were possibly the best eight months looking back. Living through them wasn't easy, but uh, as I said, with the Australian and the New Zealand uh, experiences, you couldn't pay anyone yeah. to get that right. much of experience. Right. Well, what a terrific story. So so looking back now, so eugenics has been almost 16 years, right? 15 years mm -hmm. in, a, in a few. Mm -hmm. You know, if you had to talk about kind of your leadership style, how would you say that's evolved over time? It has evolved definitely as you get older, you get wiser, I guess, mm. right? Uh, but uh, hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's not always the case. <laughs> it's not always the case, yes. Uh. Uh, so, uh, but some common tenets have remained with me, and I think uh, those are who you are, and you can't change those things. So, um, uh, I really value authenticity in other people. Uh, I can see, uh, I tell myself that I am a pretty good judge of people. 
if someone's posturing too much, I get really switched off. So right, I, right. I, uh, I make it a point to make sure that I'm authentic uh, in everything I do and, and tell people things I do know, things, things I think I do know, things I know that I don't know, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And be open about uh, the good decisions we made and the decisions that didn't pan out, the really bad decisions we made and so <laughs> on, I think. Uh, so we are blessed with a management team uh, that is of very similar culture, exactly the same culture. Um, uh, if you're familiar with the Patrick Lencioni model oh, of, yes, of really. uh, team maturity, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, maturity. one of the things that I love about uh, what Lencioni says is, uh, uh, a good team is made based on being vulnerable to each other. If you're trying to impress each other, yeah, yeah. then y- you will never make a good team. No room for ego. Uh, yeah. yeah, no room for yeah. ego. Yeah. So we, would, we, we see uh, a lot of people who are open about what they know, what they don't know, open about their fears. And then in spite of that, we make decisions we make tough decisions and we uh, put a lot of effort behind that how many employees today at Cellugenics and in, in various locations we have about 400 plus including wow. some part-time uh, employees uh, and majority of our employees are in uh, uh, southern california okay. but also in arizona and right. georgia and Missoula, Montana is mm-hmm, the next mm-hmm. larger uh, office. We operate out of uh, 12 different states. Wow. We actually pioneered this work-at-home model. Yeah. So we, we actually feel that there is a demography around the country, especially in rural America and small-town America, where highly educated people because of some personal circumstances are stuck in a small town right. um, and that doesn't have too many high technology or um, you know, a deeper business skill roles right. that right. they are capable of. So we reach out to them and we have refined the HR policies, the pay mm. policies, the IT infrastructure and the security infrastructure to enable people to work from where they where they want to work right well circling back to what we talked about early on and and bringing covid front and center here boy it sounds like you're really ahead of the curve you know i've been theorizing in my business and executive search that a remote workforce is something that we'll all have to embrace you know for a number of very good reasons health-wise of course and people's safety first and foremost but it sounds like you've already got that in place how is it working for you through this crisis yeah uh, the moving to work at home was very smooth for us because yeah. a good part of our workforce already works from home right and and uh, we already know the as i said the infrastructure the policies and training you need to make that thing work so right, what we right. realized in late March and early uh, April, when each county or each state started mandating work at home, mm. is that we have a lot to offer. We have offered our yeah. services, consulting services, to a couple of our large 
customers, as well as we put on our website and it became very popular, we shared, of course, for free with anyone who needs it, checklists of the 15 things you need to do in your HR policy before you Mm. send people home or 30 things you need to look at in your IT infrastructure before you start doing your work from home and financial things, things you need to talk Mm. to your banker about and so on. So I'd love to have those, by the way. (laughs) We'll have to separately connect after the podcast. That sounds truly interesting because I think you are really ahead of the curve where so many companies are going to really have to be to survive in a post-COVID world. Yeah. And we realized that it would be a living document. No one has a monopoly on great ideas. So we thought if someone someone uses these checklists and they find additional things we need to look at, so they can contribute. So we made it into a Creative Commons copyright. So awesome. anyone can awesome. share and dynamic yeah, document. Awesome. Awesome. And the, the challenges of company culture, though, um, are a little more are different, maybe not more difficult when you're so dispersed, both geographically, time zone, et cetera. How, how do you as CEO continue to communicate about culture? And, um, you know, how, what are your thoughts on continuing to build that now that you're going into your 16th year? Yeah, we, we definitely have evolved in, in the way we thought about culture and in the way we nurtured the right culture. You know, right, right. early on, I did what most uh, organizations do. We sat down in a workshop and said, what are our values? What do we really mm. believe in? Uh, it, I didn't ever want it to be my personal values that are pushed down the throat of uh, the management team and the rest of the team. I really wanted to discover uh, by asking, by observing, what are the values that our team has come in with Mm. uh, already? Because in those days, we were much smaller. There were 40 people uh, in in the entire company in 2004. Uh, So it was easier to do. So we uh, definitely had a vision statement, mission statement, and values, and so on. Yeah, yeah. After running the organization for about 10 years, I have started seeing the limitations in that approach. And almost by accident, I listened to a talk by a gentleman called Dave Friedman Mm. uh, somewhere in Los Angeles uh, several years back five or six years back. And we embraced that approach to culture. Mm. Uh, Dave Friedman's approach is as follows. What he says is, just standing on a hill and exhorting to your troops, saying that these are the values that we have, doesn't help, not because they don't want to follow those values, but they need a bit more guidance on what does that value mean in a day-to-day uh, activity. How does that value manifest itself in my day-to-day life, right? You can say integrity is our value. Everyone says that, right? It's like motherhood and apple pie. Who can, right, right. Uh, who can object to integrity? But what does integrity mean in this particular decision that I need to make where there are no good choices, right? Yeah. How would, um, so people need more guidance. So we yeah. We embraced what we what we call as a behavior-based 
value system. Mm. We actually came up with 30 different behaviors that we say are behaviors that a Solugenics team member exhibits. For example, you know, one of those behaviors, I love it, is assume positive intent. Mm-hmm, when right. someone says something or does something, don't jump to a conclusion that they're doing with malicious intent. Assume good intent. And if good intent is not compatible with that behavior, ask them, hey, yep. I, th- I believe you are a good person. <laughs> Why did you behave this way? Right? Mm. So assume good intent. It sounds very prosaic and not very um, important. But once something like that, that behavior becomes widespread in an organization, you see the power of it. You yeah. don't lose um, uh, your potential or effort in the wrong things. Right? That's an example of that. Fabulous. Well, listen, uh, Shashi, this has been incredible conf- conversation and far-reaching, and I'm looking forward to following up on on some of these core principles, the remote working as well as the behavioral um, uh, uh, descriptions. I think that's just so, so important, particularly for the, the company of the 21st century, you know, to post-COVID to succeed. But uh, we do have just one last question for you. Um, what kind of career and life advice would you give someone who maybe has their eyes on the corner office? Maybe they're in their 30s or their 40s and they're thinking about, you know, um, uh, getting to that top some point in time, or perhaps they want to be an entrepreneur like you. What, what, what would you tell them? Or, or perhaps your younger self at that time? <laughs> I'll have yeah. love you to answer the question oh, either way. <laughs> God, uh, I can fill a book with uh, instructions to my younger self. Like. <laughs> right. So uh, specific advice for young entrepreneurs who want to uh, really uh, become uh, the CEO. I, I, mm. I don't have any experience or advice for people who want to become CEO in the corporate world. Right, right. right. Uh, what I would say is really understand one industry deeply before mm. you jump in. Mm. It's always easier, cheaper, more efficient to <laughs> learn all your lessons while being an employee. Um, it is hard. Entrepreneurship is hard, even when you have decades of experience in that industry. Don't be in a hurry. Uh, take your time. And uh, one, if there is one book I would recommend to anyone is uh it is uh by eric reese i think it's called the lean startup oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah very uh, good one no one has a fully baked idea that can go to market without any mutation without any tweaking right always be open in the first few years at least uh, of your venture to be very open to what the market is saying and be humble about your own mm. smarts and be open to changing your uh, great idea. That's what I would say. Well, Shashi Jasti, president and CEO of Solugenics, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. I really appreciate this, uh, Brian. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.go4roi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.